Comrades, you are listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. You can listen to Good Morning Comrade on goodmorningcomrade.com. Um, today on the show, we have Jeff and Robert. What's going on, Robert? Uh, sitting here. Um, don't want to be on camera because I'm just in sweatpants for everybody who's watching on uh, Twitch. I mean, I'm like, I'm like that. My yeah. shirt showing off the the huge, humongous 24 inch python. So I mean, I mean like. I'm not gonna lie. Like I'm trying to do gamer things. I'm trying to fix my Hotas. I've got like three different, two different Hotases, but I'm trying to fix one because I want to play. What's a Hotas? It's a hands-on throttle and stick. You know, so I oh, can play okay. my space games. I like to pretend that uh, there's a game called Rebel Galaxy Outlaw, which is I think I've talked about it before. It's the whole idea of um, it's like what if the South was in space and um. You're just like a space trucker slash bounty hunter, like do kind of whatever you want to be. Mm-hmm. Like just to give you an idea of the vibe, there's a um, anybody who's like Alabama, Louisiana, Texas kind of thing. Um, there's a uh, where you refuel your spaceship. Um, there's a, a a station where you refuel called Buckshots, and it's uh, it's a uh, logo is an armadillo with a shotgun. It's just space buckies. Space buckies. <laughs> so it's like yeah, that's the vibe. It's really good. It's really relaxing. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. what I'm up to. Cool. We got a very special guest today. We got Jeremy on the show. What's going on, Jeremy? Hey, everybody. How you doing? Uh, greetings from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, my name's Jeremy. I am another, I don't know what. I am actually no. I will say this. I uh, I would say that I I uphold a stereotype, but as opposed to being another like o- uh, overly educated, uh, under un- underemployed. Um, be spectacled glasses wearing left podcaster with a slight speech impediment. And, um, you know, it's like, and okay. And you'll occasionally hear a cat in the background of my show. I am not a millennial. I am a Gen Xer. So take that stereotype. Oh, there you go. You are, you are actually an iconoclast is what you are. You got it. Yeah. I, I host a, I've been hosting a, a, um, I guess you could call, yeah a podcast out of Portland, Oregon, since about uh, mid twenty sixteen, called "Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person," where um, the original thing, which was originally started as just because I got so pissed off at how many uh, you know quote unquote geek facing pop culture. In like you know, podcasts and YouTube shows were pretty much only about four things, and if you weren't didn't want to talk about uh, superheroes, zombies, video games, or um, I don't know what vampires, I guess whatever the fourth thing would be. <laughs> yeah, and, the, and four then, it, the four things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, the, yeah, the four things that are of course, like have fun. Jeez. Yeah, the fourth, the, yeah, of course, the four things that are you know far less cool than the four pillars of hip hop that. Um, 
so I wanted I started a, a, a podcast about people's personal obsessions. And when I, we we originally started, like I talked, I interviewed my friend who was the president of the Oregon Go chapter. We talked about the history of the game Go for about two hours, which wound up being like our most downloaded episode from, you know, I mean, just. It's weird to see, like you know, hundreds of people downloading it from like South Korea, for example. <laughs> and then, um, as twenty sixteen went along, and a lot of us radicalized a little bit more. Once twenty seventeen hit, and then we just said, okay, heck with it. We're going a lot more, uh, a lot more leftist stuff in here. And I joined DSA, and my a couple of my co-hosts were also in DSA, and so we did started mixing in a lot more like pop culture and leftist content. So uh, the tagline for my show I call now is. Um, socialism and Simpsons quotes, Posadism and pro wrestling. Yes, we love pro wrestling. Yeah, we just do. To kind of, yeah, just to um, even though I think we, I think we barely talk about it anymore. But it's more uh, we've had definitely had uh, multiple episodes where I've talked to like I talked to Ian Williams who had that Vice column on. Uh, Ian's a good dude. Ian's a oh, very yeah. good. He, he, I mean, he talked to us about for two hours about everything from Dusty Rhodes to how much he loved The Witcher 3 because he so wanted, like, he you know, he just realized he loved that uh, that daddy-daughter relationship where he's like, I hope one day my daughter gets, you know, uh, is, um, you know, is turns out like Garrett where she, you know, she goes out like just, just you know, slays people or slays people across the continent and uh, goes off in the either... Uh, either in just kind of like you know humps her way through or fights her way through all sorts of problems and then going back to talking about like uh dusty roads as leftist hero mm -hmm. but also the uh oh, yeah. a working class hero i mean that that yeah. hard times promo is absolutely brilliant i mean we've, hard we've times, Daddy. on the promo on promo on the show where he talks about you know just basically being the son of a son of a plumber you know like coming mm -hmm. up from the odd times you know the whole thing is just it's just absolutely brilliant um you know you, i wasn't expecting to go into this in this direction um but yeah let's talk a little bit about wrestling so um in terms of that like what about wrestling is important to you and you know what? What is appealing to you? What is what is entertaining to you? What is what is like beautiful about this ugly sport of two mostly men? Not always anymore, thank God. Uh, you know, people like smashing one another across the face with a steel chair. You know, why is that a beautiful thing? Why is that an art? Why is that a medium by which a story can be conveyed? It's 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 actually incredible, right? Yep. What I enjoy about it has changed over the years, much like with any, with, much like with any, you know, kind of, I don't want to say maturing art form, but, or maybe this is the it's developing to be a hundred percent clear. Like wrestling is different than it was 10 years ago, than it was 20 years ago, than it was 30 years ago. It's constantly changing and developing. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I grew up in the, in the classic era where, I think the first the first WrestleMania I ever saw was WrestleMania two, and oh, I just, in the multiple uh, locations. Oh yes, and that was the first one we ever because my family had my dad was an early adopter of cable, so we had pay per views, and my father had always my father and all my uncle and all of my uh, relatives were big pro wrestling fans. My uncle. My uncle Gene was a ref um, was a referee down at the IMA in Flint, Michigan. What? Both he did. He would do everything from boxing matches to pro wrestling. And my dad would tell me stories about when he was a kid. Oh, hello, cat. Uh, when he was a kid, 
in um oh hello cat but uh when he was a kid in flint during the mid 50s how he and great grandma Cossett would go down to the saturday morning matches and mm-hmm. um all of the ro- workers knew do not go over to that corner uh because like, they would sit on like a corner up by the ring they mm-hmm. do not go over that corner because that that woman there with her big hat and her umbrella let's just say wrestling was still real to her and um and she was and she was a big enough mark that she she was ready to let uh, let those heels have it with her umbrella. And my, my uncle and my uncle Gene, yeah, my uncle Gene would he would uh, he would referee matches. In fact, he would even show up on sometimes. And like, I think there's some still like seventies, uh, some seventies archival pro wrestling you can see from around Michigan, where he's this kind of tall, bald haired guy named Gene is uh, the the ref. So uh, I grew I grew up watching this stuff in in like the uh, in the mid eighties era, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely during during uh, golden era Hulk, Hulkamania, where uh, it's the kind of thing where like I mean we would stay up to watch Saturday night's main event years before I started watching SNL. Yeah, it was just like like appointment television. Like it is like like it is an event. It is a show. It is a spectacle. It is the goddamn circus. Yeah. <laughs> It's, that's like happening when these two, you know, gorilla dudes are like going to punch one another in the face. Or sometimes even better, you'll get the genius to come in in his graduation robe and cap yep. to, to like sing a song and like 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 rap some quick poetry and like introduce Mister Perfect, you know, like something like that. Lanny Poffo, who uh, who for, Let, for, Randy Savage's brother, absolute yep. my favorite wrestler of all time, by the way, is Randy Savage. Yeah, the uh, oh my bro- my brothers as well. The in fact, my bro- my, uh, my younger brother and his friends they were about they were about two and a half three years younger than me, and they uh, they got they uh, we're going all over the place. It's like uh, this is an extremely out of well. First, Lanny Papa when he was still a face, when he would read off his poems and then like have, he would and then would like throw out frisbees to the audience, which yeah. is just such a, such a hilariously leaping like, Lanny. Yeah, Leap and Lanny Alpha, which is just like this hilariously, just um, I don't know if it's like sort of like like southern gimmick or just, but it's just like minorly wrestling gimmick of like, yeah, your face tosses out free frisbees as a way to get support from the audience. But um, I can remember my my uh, my brothers who were much my brother and his his football playing friends who were much bigger fans. They went they got back uh after their dark era. Kind of, you know, their dark years were kind of shorter than mine. So when they got back into it during the Attitude Era, that was when uh, backyard wrestling was a thing. And I can remember when they were old, and my brother and all of his uh, football playing buddy, college football playing buddies were in undergrad, and they had a video camera. And so they would do things like they would gimmick a table, and they would like film themselves like power bombing each other through tables. <laughs> but, the the um, I think, but the importance of one of the main things that I think about, and we can get into Roland Barthes' uh, episode, uh, you know, commentary about this too, about just the nature of of um, I see a bearded. Okay, anyway, so yeah, my I messaged my friend I'm gonna be on, and uh, my uh, my friend messaged me back. He's like, okay, are you on this? I see a bearded dude with music playing. I'm like, oh, it's probably well, that's one of us. <laughs> the, the I think the important thing to take from pro wrestling now is the idea of kayfabe, and yeah. I did I didn't know I did, wasn't sure if this is this was going to remain true after Trump got out of office, but I can remember in the episode we recorded with Ian Williams was talking about how 
Uh, you needed to understand kayfabe to understand modern American politics, but okay. also you can under you could understand Trump by what Vince did, and you could understand Vince by what Trump did because mm -hmm. both Trump and Vince were both you know the the you know heirs to this fortune that was you know built in the mid twentieth century. They were both kids. Um, you know, son of uh, the sons of sons and inheritors of very abusive, like emotionally effed up, um, you know, uh, uh, business yeah. tycoons. Yeah. And then they, they and then they inherit this throne. You know, um, Trump gets starts doing business in the 70s and Vince starts getting control of the WWF in the mid 70s. And they both have to establish themselves as legitimate operators of their own in 80s Manhattan. Although Vince, although Vince pulled out to Stanford, and so it's kind of like, I think they always had they were always simpatico forever, which is why. And what you mean, Trump was always you know the big casino guy, and Vince was always the big carny guy. So of course they got a lot. I mean, what WrestleMania four was was the first one held at a at a at, at a Trump, Trump casino at a Trump hotel, a Trump yeah. property. I remember that. Yeah, and so it's kind of a thing of like understand. And then even okay, so now we're out. We are. <laughs> Trump is not currently the act. The well, it's to say they're not currently letting letting him occupy the White House, shall we say? And but understanding how kayfabe work and how in how heels and faces work to people is extremely. Um, well, I don't know if it's like the most important thing, but it's definitely it is fundamental knowledge for understanding American politics. No, I mean you look at like a, a freak like Kristen Cinema, and she's straight out of like. 80s she's like her and like sherry martel yeah could be Sensational like, Perry. It's, yeah it's absolutely like she's she's a freak she's a weirdo and she plays it up like she plays it up for the booze which mm -hmm. i don't i don't understand i honestly don't understand but in her mind like this logically like works for her i don't know yeah, I think someone once said like the opposite of love is not hate the opposite of love is just yeah. is just is boredom is just kind of like eh is is nothing and and either uh and Jake the Snake would talk about how like you know heat is heat and you uh and you know he would do what he could do is like, at one point when you know when you you were so I think either Jake said this or maybe Roddy Piper said this in his biography also well fun thing about living in Portland turns out Roddy Roddy Piper is you know is not Portland yeah he and in fact he uh before he in the last years of his life he owned an auto garage way over in Beaverton which is the uh, on like a like a little uh city to about 5 miles west of uh of of Portland but he talked about how you know you're connecting with the audience not when they were cheering not just when they were cheering for you but when and especially with Jake the Snake they um mothers in the audience would would throw soiled diapers at the ring to try to hit him and like that's yeah. what he knew that that he was connecting it and it's um and but yeah the, the whole like cinema mansion thing is very makes a lot more sense when you realize that there is that they are playing a role for the camera yeah and that you know and that they get being you know in like this almost like rick flair or even uh let's say a slightly newer um <laughs> maybe even trish stratus how about that kind of a sense of like being able to you know to to absorb the the and kind of thriving off of the audience's ire because yeah. it's kind of like stuck drinking the hatred yeah 
You are listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. We have Jeff and Robert on the show with Jeremy from giving the mic to the wrong person. Uh, we're surprisingly talking about wrestling, which is good. I'm enjoying this little uh, this uh, way that we're kind of going about things. Um, but yeah, we were talking a little bit about how you can sort of like look at wrestling as like a vector for um like the way you look at politics and like, yeah, there is a certain amount of like kayfabe that goes about it. Like the idea that somebody like Kirsten Cinema is like playing things up for the booze and for the, you know, for the haters and just to kind of like, just to kind of get a reaction to kind of upper response. I mean, we, we all saw the memes when they had that picture of her like clutching on to like whoever the hell that, you know, Republican guy was like talking about this is why we can't ever possibly do an infrastructure bill that would like prevent people from being evicted from their homes right tomorrow. <laughs> this is why we can't do that. Yeah. And like, you know, like like the whole point of that was to uh to become like the story or the headline or the attention seeker or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Also the should we define kayfabe for the uh yeah, for define the, kayfabe for the normies. Uh do you want to or should I? Go for it. Kf- for for my limited understanding, kayfabe because pro wrestling is one hundred percent of what do you want, cat? Is one hundred percent of carny origins, and so when you understand that in terms of like uh, about how this was like the this a literal sideshow act to you know to get to soak the marks for money, kayfabe was a way of having everybody you know in on it, talk to each other in a language that the mark you know the the, uh, the punter in the audience wasn't aware of. Yeah, just going with the bit essentially, yeah, going with going with the bit and never ever uh, and never breaking character. Correct. But uh, and the it's kind of like it, it is. You know, it's it's a way in a language of maintaining in universe, um, not just continuity. Continuity, but, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. Universe based continuity. You want to like, you don't want to do like a, um, you know, you don't want to breach that reality that that you're constructing when you're when you're telling that story, right? You you want to make sure that you're keeping that illusion complete. Although, and it's it's and it is um it is amusing that. Uh, even though pro wrestling was better at maintaining it for decades, you would still have, you know, breaks breakthrough when say hacksaw Jim Duggan got arrested with the iron Sheik for possession because they were driving between, I can't remember. I think like this, I think there's somewhere in the, either in the Midwest or in the North, they're driving, mm-hmm. be, driving between towns on the way to the next match, they get pulled over and they got, and they were all like, you know, had more, I think more than a little bit of marijuana on them. And you know, I think they Vince tried to do had to do whatever he could to quash that in uh, in the press so that no one could what you know they couldn't do what you could call breaking kayfabe. Mm-hmm. Also, I always thought that kayfabe is was a was a derivation of fake. They just switched the uh, the consonants. It was carny talk in a lot of yeah, ways. But, um, and again, they would go to extreme lengths to prevent like breaking of kayfabe, and especially in, like the nineteen eighties. Do you remember the David Schultz John Stossel incident? Oh, uh, Dr. Death, the, uh, doc, David Schultz, Dr. Death, which was, was that actually 1980 or was that 1978? It was in the 1980s or the 1970s. It was a long time ago, but yeah. essentially John Stossel comes out and he says, I think wrestling's fake. And this wrestling dude just fucking slaps him upside the head. And he's yeah. like, does that feel fake to you? <laughs> it, rupt- it ruptured, ruptured Stossel's eardrum, I think. Wait a minute. It what actually happened in- to a nicer guy, by the way. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's um speaking of uh, speaking of seventies, uh seventies uh, uh dark haired um TV dudes with interesting pasts that wound up later on Fox News. If you ever get a chance, go back and watch because the the, uh, the archive tapes are on YouTube. Go watch the 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 reports that Geraldo Rivera was doing for ABC back in the seventies. He was doing something where he would like had like just glorious long seventies hair and would be like interviewing Muhammad Ali in like nineteen seventy four. Anyway, but in terms of maintaining uh, kayfabe, like I think Vince, by the way, maintained kayfabe like none other. Yeah, like even though like rest like like boxing was real, like he knew how to hold a feud, like he knew how to do a PR feud. Oh yeah, this was he uh, at a certain point. Yeah, it's kind of like you need to. He he was really much about holding up the um, the narrative, the story. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, so that no one actually broke character or anything like that. And actually, but and he was able to sell it too. Mm-hmm. The but it, but in terms of breaking character, and I think it was like Vince and them, Vince and the other like you know execs told them told the David you know uh, Doctor Death to actually go out and do this, and I think even uh, even like kind of like used him as a bit of a fall guy when uh you know so much like they got a lot of bad you know as a a, a childhood buddy of mine would say you know there's no bad thing as there's no such thing as bad publicity as long as they spell your name right uh david he got all this heat for doing this stuff but it's one of those things where hey you know vince just kept laughing because you know it got it got you know it got eyeballs Mm -hmm. as uh we would now describe it so which is what matters like there's no 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 press is bad press right that kind of thing Indeed, yeah. So, so, who's your favorite wrestler of all time? What's your favorite sort of like period of wrestling and 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 that whole thing, and why? Because I grew up myself. I grew up in the nineteen, you know, like I grew up in the nineties. I was a, you know, I'm born in eighty four, um, and and like there was nothing like the Attitude Era. I mean, that was like the craziest stuff that I'd ever seen in my entire life. When you had like the, I mean, it was not just the Attitude Era. Like you would have like the. Um, the, the the night the uh WCW Monday Nitro like you know that the whole sort of Nitro versus Raw yeah and then the Raw thing but then I don't know there was a um there was just a complete and utter implosion by WCW which that whole story by the way um like the way that it was written is very obviously and clearly been like post hoc reconstructed by the uh by the like WWE like moralizing and saying that you see this is what happens when the workers get too much power inside of wrestling <laughs> you know yeah. what i mean says the company that the ones that the, the, says the folks that made hulk hogan right the, the most authoritarian um, of all though <laughs> although that's that's the interesting thing is like even um i think even rick flair talked about how you couldn't you could have wrestlers booking things but you could not have you couldn't have them both book uh you know um write these shows and like figure out their own their own storylines but also uh wrestle them because it's kind of like the we you know 90s wcws we saw what the, the result of that was where like certain superstars came over from wwf um paid you know because they were all, they had they had time warner turner was i think either merged with or owned by tom time warner at that point and so mm-hmm. they had crazy money just to throw at this stuff yeah. and um but i mean as for my my favorites my favorite wrestler it varied by the years like when i was a uh, in the 80s classic era i was 
I think, yeah, I think I was a big Hulk Hogan fan, but more, and then eventually morphed into being more of a fan of George the Animal Steel and especially Roddy Piper. I think for a while, like Roddy Roddy Piper was my favorite wrestler because um, he was just this complete smart ass. And um, I think at some point, you know, in like adolescent me, Piper's kid was just like revolutionary, right? The idea that he would like bring in, um, bring in somebody and just like talk absolute garbage to them and then like either like beat them up himself or have him like 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 just find like hogan and like the like andre the giant and be like okay i'm gonna start stuff between y'all and y'all are gonna get mad because i'm instigating the whole thing <laughs> like yeah. Just absolute brilliant. The guy is the guy was a weirdo and like he definitely did some questionable stuff. But in terms of gathering heat, absolute genius. Oh yeah. The um and like yeah, like I said, his if you get a chance, read his uh, autobiography in uh, all there's a lot of like wrestling once once Mick Foley realized you could make a you know a heck of a lot of money. Anyway. Yeah, just to kill, just to kill it with uh, with with their own books, and so WWE started churning out these books, and a lot of them were like you can't really tell. Well, they're, they're like very obviously ghost written or at least ghost assisted. Brody Body Piper is very uh, clearly written by him in his voice with some of his uh, <laughs> with some of his TBI kind of yeah. occasionally uh, manifesting. Mm-hmm. The uh, and. I got, and then I started. I drifted away. Uh, drifted away from wrestling about ninety one, ninety two. Because I think by that point, by that point, I had had a modem, and I was far more into like computer games and calling up BBSs and just into other stuff. And it wasn't really until I can remember I went. Uh, I went to. Uh, Went to undergrad and once in a while, like on a Saturday night, you'd flip around and then you'd see like W, you know, uh, WCW Saturday night and just kind of like, oh, that's you know, how cute. That's that's kind of fun. And then flip past it. How about yeah, how novel? It's like, oh, okay, who knows that that was still on? And it wasn't really until again the Attitude Era, which um, for those in the audience who don't know, Attitude Era is what they call think. Um, Think the NWO and Steve Austin. If you think of Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock, when they really, you know, kind of became the uh, the heavyweights, it was the golden age of parent pearl clutching. Of like, oh, we have violent video games. Oh, we have like scary music, and oh, we have like violent wrestling. Like it was just like yeah. like that was basically the whole point of the attitude area was to freak out the squares, man, in like the yeah. most nineties way possible. God and uh, yeah, Joe Joe Lieberman wanting to censor uh, Mortal the first Mortal Kombat home console game because of it, they freaked out when you you know a fatality when you'd punch a guy and six rib cages would fly out and really bad pixelated sprites. And don't forget that Hillary Clinton took the bait on that. Like, oh yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Hillary Clinton was a huge. Um, a huge warrior for that, and also uh, Tipper Gore was huge on the um, on the on the the um, parental advisory like PMRC, parents music resource console or something yeah. like that. Which yeah. I, that was the PMRC stuff happened just at the very beginning of my consciousness of pop culture because mm-hmm. I remember it would be occasionally would pop up on MT- I was like. I think I would be like eight or nine and I would like uh, it would occasionally pop up on MTV. The very, the very little I would watch that or um, it would pop up on like, you know, you'd see it mentioned on because I watched Nickelodeon all the time and they had their own, their music video show was called Nick Rocks, which was great. And that's how my, my early introduction to a lot of music and it would occasionally pop up on there. The 
but also uh but, was, but during that era and that was um again my my uh, my my younger brother and all his friends got back into wrestling but i uh and i was on campus i think i was See, I lived in Ann Arbor, uh, went down there to go to engineering school in like 94. And I, and I was an undergrad for six years because I double majored, which was such a great idea. And um, <laughs> I, got a, I got a job at a meat market, this kind of like meat market sports bar on campus, which I found out later, talk about wrestling, the Steiner brothers, who are both University of Michigan wrestling, uh, var, you know, varsity wrestling yeah. champions. Hall of Famers. <laughs> yeah, Hall of Famers. Both briefly worked at that bar as bouncers you know uh 10 or 15 years earlier could you imagine mess like getting on the wrong side of those dudes at the bar yeah. like <laughs> like i'm sure they were terrific bouncers yeah and so i was working working at this bar is it because I, I needed like a summer you know i had i had lost my job as a computer a computer lab help guy and i needed a summer job and i'm like okay well here we watch red wings games here and this was like when the, the red wings were were very dominant i'm like okay well they need they need help for summer help and I'm like okay i'll you know get a job here as a cook and worked and eventually started being a bar back there the and the guys are you know both the, the managers and, other, and a lot of the other workers were like really big wrestling fans mm-hmm. and i can remember uh, like hanging out and talking to them, and they'd want to like, here, check this out. You know, Carl Malone and Diamond Dallas Page are wrestling a couple other guys on this pay per view. It's kind of fun to see. And it wasn't really until I think a, a, during a snowstorm, Dennis Rodman, too. Dennis, yeah, Rodman. Dennis, yeah, Dennis Rodman, yep. It wasn't really until a snowstorm in early 99. We were stuck inside, so I just clicked on like Nitro one night, and I heard Bobby the Brain Heenan's voice. I'm like, okay, okay, I remember this voice. And I, Bobby the Brain was great because he was just like, you know, again, just just completely would rip on people. And uh, that, and so I started watching it again, and then I started getting into all of the um, <laughs> pro wrestling, you know, all of this, the pro wrestling smart mark online stuff the, the amount of like what wrestling websites out there were just legion and they were all they made his bones. Yeah. And it was all like, if anybody remembers geo city and angel fire, yeah. uh, geo cities, and it, they were all almost, almost all of these wrestling fan pages, almost to a single one, unless they had a lot of money behind them were all worse than your average angel fire production. But I can remember for uh, like the last year that I was uh, last year or two when I was in uh, in 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 undergrad, I would uh, if I if I would tape, I think I would tape the um, um, you know had my little like VCR and I would tape the Monday night shows and whatever show I didn't watch, I would download the recaps and like re, you know get bored in class and so I you know I print them out in, like in the uh, in the um, in the computer labs and I just read recaps of the previous night shows forever and then in that era. That era of my favorite wrestler was definitely Eddie Guerrero. Oh my god, absolute king. Did yeah. I have like a fever dream in the 90s or was there a thing where there was almost like a a live not live action but it was like a what would you call it like an alternate not alternate reality but one of those like reality based games that people would play but the whole idea of it was I can't think of it but it was you would create a wrestler or you would like take the persona of a wrestler and you'd be like, Oh, the rock is going to wrestle stone cold. So one guy in the message board would be like the rock and the other guy would be say stone cold <laughs> and they would write promos. And then the people who they would write like promos and the people on the message boards would read them. And whoever had the better promo, like people would vote and that person would win. So you'd have like win losses and like a legit champ of like this weird, 
message board wrestling like, fan. Like Did I dream that? Stuff. Was that a thing that happened? That sounds like the smack off for Jim Rome. Kind of. Yeah. Well, that's that is def. I mean, given the. I think a lot of this. I mean, this actually sounds like something that would come out that would spin out of like America on the, the boards on America Online. Yeah, hundred percent. That was. I think that was more that you would have like somebody saying like I'm Frieza and you're Goku and I'm gonna fight you and you have to just like type the words. Out I never participated in it, but like I had a buddy who did, and I'm like, dude, this is the worst way to spend a Saturday night I can ever imagine. <laughs> I was yeah, like, you know that you know that pornography is on the internet, right? And it's free. <laughs> Like my dude, like we're living past the days of even like dialers that would dial your parents' yeah. phone to like Cuba or something and charge them like a million dollars. Like you yeah, can just but- look at the porno. Well, you, you are listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. Good morning, comrade. We have Jeff and Robert, and we also have our friend Jeremy from Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person podcast. Go ahead, Jeremy. The uh, the radio station what WHLV was HLVLP IV LP New Orleans. Kind of like uh, so, um, the director of our station, a uh, founder, is an infectious disease doctor uh, who does a lot of uh, work around HIV. So um, that's where that's where the name comes from. Gotcha. WHIV LP at 102.7 FM, isn't it? 102.3. 102.3 FM. You can also listen online to WHIVFM.org slash listen. Excellent rock and roll, and I still I can still switch into radio voice once in a while. The, um, the God, I, I'm trying to remember. We would, yeah. In fact, uh, I was doing college radio by that point, and we would find the old the uh, like WWF comp, uh, comp, compiled theme songs, and we would occasionally like, play some theme songs. And, you know, because we were we were at a freeform station, and so me and uh, me and once in a while, like a, I'd have my 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 you know idiot drunken buddy in there we'd occasionally like mix in um like pro wrestler themes into like all right here's you know here's like a you know a bunch you know here's like a bunch of who's your do um rob mold wrestling another wrestling uh, uh connection a bunch of who's your do and and dead kennedys and stuff like the mc5 and then occasionally we would cut in stuff like songs from charlie and the chapter chocolate factory and pro wrestling uh main themes Mm-hmm. So that was, but the, that was the attitude era. And then I pretty much dropped out of, uh, I kind of like receded from pro wrestling again, about probably in like Oh one Oh two, like after, after they started doing all the invasion, you know, they bought, I remember watching the, uh, watching the, the last episode of nitro where, where, um, where, where Shane O'Mac shows up and they do it. It was a really weird weekend. Uh, but actually, had a great match between Sting and Ric Flair to finish out the entire series, which was nice. But like yeah. the whole thing was a mess. Yep. And then they then they had uh, then they had a great you know there was again it was like that era where they of course, um, I think CM Punk said something about described Vince McMahon as a millionaire who should be a billionaire, and a lot of his like screwy decisions over the over the years have kind of like really uh, really. Um, evidence that like, the stuff of like what you know, where his like his ego would get in the, his ego or really bad ideas or whatever would get in the way of like just letting the people who knew what they were doing actually do their jobs. Yeah, but in like, any just world, he would have just been like any other fail son, right? Of yeah. just like, any other rich guy. But like the fact that you like live in this hell of America, that like you basically wealth just begets wealth. Yeah. And so it's, compl- it's like an infinite 
like an infinite like repeating like cycle yeah and uh and not just that but also vince gets in starts up business early on with this guy who would later become president and you get to the point where in uh wrestling becomes big and big big enough and big enough again that both presidential candidates in 2008 both record promos to play at i can't either it was either on raw or on uh, or on the pay-per-view so and then later, and then also, and then later, the wife of the C. Actually, no, I think, I think Linda might be the C, Linda. Linda the CEO. I think she's a CFO, uh, or she's one of these C-suite like, like, like name title whatever's. But like, like she's. I think Vince is like the president, and she might be the CEO. I don't know. It doesn't really yeah. matter. Well, you know, you had yeah, you have Vince's wife Linda, um, <laughs> getting you know getting a spot in the Trump administration as the uh, in the in the small business administration after office. running for Senate and losing by the way right if you get uh, anybody in the audience want a fun little arc little fun little fact uh, she I believe Linda ran for Senate in like what it would be Connecticut wouldn't it. Yeah. Yep. Find the uh, search the campaign mailer that her campaign sent out for her Senate campaign in 2012. There's a picture of her and of Barack Obama together on this on this uh, on this mailer. Like you know, we're, you know, like, talking about how we're like you know, even though she was clearly running for the GOP slot, but she also knew who she was um, who she had to uh, aim for. So it was like it was just this. It was uh, yeah. It was like she her a campaign mailer with Obama. Uh, portrayed in a positive light. It's just this great little, again, weird artifact of uh, of history, but also of both pro wrestling and of American politics. Yeah, just just a complete and utter mess, right? A complete and utter like it, otherwise incomprehensible jumble of images, right? Uh, but like it makes sense in the particular context of like the state of Connecticut. <laughs> yep, in two thousand and. 18 or whatever year it was 2012 20 it was 2012 really was it that 20, long her, her first yeah, I believe, her first campaign was 20 was 2012 the but it's also i think again these are all again these are like i don't know essential truths that pro, that uh fa- pro wrestling fandom can imp- you know, it can impart wisdom, like say, not just not just that, as the great Ted DiBiase once said, every man has his price, but also <laughs> more of a sense of like never say never, and uh, any out of any amount of money will eventually, uh, <laughs> not just that, but it's like any amount of money will eventually overcome the most bitter feud and refusal of people to work together. Like for example, had had Macho Man Randy Savage not uh, had his unfortunate ending, even though uh, <laughs> his extremely uh, problematic history with the McMahon family. Um, would not have prevented if if Vince smelled money, he would have brought him back because they brought back Hogan and they brought back Ultimate Warrior. Yeah, yeah. If you can make a buck, you you, you, you know all these personal problems and 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 you know whatever issues you have kind of get pushed to one side because there's we got we got business to do here, folks. We, we're trying to we're on our business here. Yeah, we got money to make. You yeah. know, no matter what happens, we got money to make and. Um, no, I'm just, I just, I'm just, I'm just flashing back to the first. 
I think, you know, it was the first WrestleMania that we ever saw live on pay-per-view where it was like, we actually got like, like my dad ordered it. So my, my, bro- my, my, me and my brother were there and like all of our neighbor friends, like our next door na- uh, we, neighbors would come over both adults and kids. We'd all cram into our, like, I don't know, like 10, 12 people crammed into our basement to watch WrestleMania three. Which was being held at the Pontiac Silverdome, which would have been about an hour. Well, about people, an hour. People were literally hanging from the ceiling, by the or hanging from the rafters. If you're asking yeah. people, Gorilla Monsoon. Oh yeah, and uh, I, one of these days, I want somebody. To actually, I hope somebody has gone back through to the you know, <laughs> talk about epistemic limits and found out exactly how heavily papered that show was. Like how many how many thousand free tickets did they have to give out to just stock that uh, that place full? Because the Pontiac Silverdome was where where the Detroit Lions played, just outside of Detroit, about an hour southeast of my hometown of Flint. And, um, but I just remember, you know, remember watching that and, uh, was like, all right, this is here. And for some reason they brought a, uh, a pre, a pre rehab Alice Cooper to come like, you know, uh, accompanying, uh, accompany Jake, the snake Roberts to the ring and all sorts of other, I mean, just crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, oh, so you're from Flint. That's interesting. So, I mean, I guess, you know, obviously there's the, to like change gears like dramatically, I guess you could say. Like, I mean, do you still have family out there? Most of my, uh, I think my, no, I think most of my family, I think my, for a while, my aunt still lived right outside of Flint, but most of my immediate family is, you know, f- split to the four winds. My parents, my parents retired. My parents wanted to get the heck out of Michigan because of, for obvious reasons, but they still wanted seasons. So instead of retiring to Florida, they went halfway and they're now in, uh, right outside of Knoxville. Knoxville, of course, in Knox County, current mayor won Glenn Kane. Jacobs. Yeah. yeah. Isaac Yankum. D- yeah. Dr. Isaac Yankum, DDS. <laughs> a friend of ours up here um is actually one of the co-chairs of the dsa in new orleans is uh from knox county um but anyway um that's actually brings a good transition to dsa but uh after this this station id you listen to whiv lp new orleans 102.3 is good morning comrade good morning comrade.com so you're a delegate to the uh, dsa national convention and one of the ways that we hooked up was actually even though i didn't realize that you were also on the michael brooks show servers as well but um we we kind of hooked up on on one of the slack channels and convention so i guess i wanted to kind of you know get your take on you know what is what is going on with this convention how you feeling what's what, what's what's up with it so far and what do you expect going forward mm, going exp- let's just say um this was my second convention. My first one was 2019 down in Atlanta. Um, <laughs> you are still waiting for the elevator, I think, right? Yep, still waiting for the elevator. Atlanta, again, all these pro wrestling connections are Atlanta. Former headquarter. No, actually, no, it was Smyrna. WCW is located in Smyrna, which is like what? Like uh, the, one of the. Uh, much like you know, WWE is in is Stanford, WCW is in Smyrna, right outside of Atlanta. But yeah, that was my first. Yeah, it was just like basically Smyrna is where Turn is at. Yeah, the, uh, the but the, yeah, that twenty nineteen convention we had over a thousand delegates from crammed into a ballroom in this 
I think it was like one of the in the, just this this wizard tower in downtown Atlanta, where the um, I think I, I can understand why they did it because they needed they needed a they wanted a, I think they wanted a, a a union hotel that wasn't in wasn't in Chicago yet again, yeah. and they were uh, r- rumor had it they were looking at New Orleans and all the New Orleans people reps were like no no way in hell do not come here there is uh, you do not want to do, do business well, with anybody okay, here. Okay, okay. I can I can illuminate this because I was a part of the, some of these discussions because I'm in DSA in New Orleans right and and right. part of the problem is with New Orleans. Is that if you hold a convention, when you have a you you literally have DSA convention once every other year, like every two years, right? Yep. Um, in New Orleans, and August is directly in the middle of hurricane season, like right smack in the middle. It starts in June, it ends in November, right? So like it's right directly in like the highest traffic part of. Of hurricane season, um, which like, look, you just don't want to do that without a contingency plan. We love yeah. conventions in New Orleans, but that's just not the best time of year, you know. Yeah, that's uh, that. I wouldn't be surprised. Although, talk about a um, talk about giving everybody, you know, giving all these delegates from across the country a uh, a nice little uh, <laughs> a nice little taste of life in the region, huh? I would say this though. I would say this if we if we have this infrastructure set up for um, if we have the infrastructure set up for like this remote situation that we have now, let's try it out. And Plan B is this. Yeah. <laughs> the although the, the one thing about the convention things that I've noticed, yeah, yeah. John John nine nine two says the Fed would use the weather machine to get us out. It's true. <laughs> Oh, I, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot you're on Twitch, which means you, you don't, which means you, uh, right. Do we have, oh, there is a comments window. Okay, cool. Sorry. I forgot. I, some, I, I have, I rare, uh, I don't use Streamyard that much. So anyway, but so the, I think one of the, so, uh, for folks who don't know the, again, this is a, this big convention of, um, happens every couple of years. Uh, last time was two years ago in the, in a much more, <laughs> much more, there was extremely more optimistic time. That was mini 2019, uh, um, mid 2019 rather versus now the, I don't know the benefits. Uh, I mean, yes, it is. A, it's a huge logistical headache to get, you know, to get a thousand and one people anywhere. Oh yeah. Much less. Actually, you know, let me close my door. You get a thousand one people, much you know, have them travel across the country. Not to mention, like some of them flew in from Alaska and Honolulu and all that stuff, rather than just having you know having everybody just piling into the van and road trip down to wherever. Mm-hmm. But having um, I will say that experience there as um complicated and uh and dramatic and emotionally complex. Was it? There were plenty of great times there, and it was it was something where the parasocial become became the social. Like all of these people who you only knew because you 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 could if you heard them talk on mic, you could recognize their voice because you listened to their podcast, or because like you would meet people who were you had seen through like on Twitter or. like I, I met and I talked to you know like hey look there over there there's Nathan Robinson from Current Affairs or oh, oh we, we love Nathan Robinson we love we love Nathan here yeah I talked to him briefly just talk 
tell him about to see if I could get some of his writers to come up on my podcast. He followed before. us on Twitter. Damn it. Finally. God. <laughs> it took forever. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, or, or other stuff like, you know, at nights, you know, you would have like convention stuff during the day and at night you'd have like the, the much more social meetups, which I hope that um, there weren't a lot of there weren't a lot of options for people in recovery. But fortunately, I wasn't. So like, you know, I give me more beer. But being able to like go to like, the, you know, like the bars in kind of like the downtown area where you could like have a beer with like Alex Vitale because like, hey, man, I, you know, yeah. I'm stuck. I'm reading your book, but I'm kind of stuck in the middle of it. Just, you know, just just, um, you know, just chat with him or, you know, meeting Eric. Blanc again from uh uh you know talking about I heard, I heard things about that um street fight slash antifada slash trillbilly show that was supposed to be a lot of fun i see the, i remember hearing about that but i think it, that was so completely sold out by the time i got there that i never had a chance of getting a ticket however oh. the night that later the, uh that weekend i did get i did get to meet i think i met both brett and brian at one of the evening hangouts they're the um, best while we were there yeah the there was a you know, it was kind of like meeting people like all right you know meeting brace belden i'm like oh hey and who's very much like he, very much in real life like he is online and just kind of chatting with him about stuff even though he is shorter than you'd expect uh, <laughs> um, everybody i'm six one so everybody's shorter than me the and then or stuff like there was there was a night where uh in where the the emerge caucus out of new york city and like jamie pa, jamie peck of the antifada organized this kind of party which was there was a there was a i think was, the name I, I think the name of the bar was oh, called the Church. show by the way jamie peck we love jamie oh yes um there was a i can't remember name, what the name of the bar is it i thought it was just called church but there's actually a bar in uh in atlanta not to uh, a couple spaces over from probably some of the best pizza that i'd ever had um in atlanta, <laughs> in atlanta yep yeah, best pizza ever had, cooked by uh in a flat crust pizza cooked by a guy wearing um wearing a 90s grant hill pistons you know the teal and uh, and horsepower era pistons jersey incredible which is, which is a jersey i did not expect you know again having lived in michigan until 2004 i did not expect to see that jersey in atlanta 50, you know 17 years later it, but anyway, so there's there was a bar there called Church, and the, there was a big you know two stories. The upstairs had a couple of pool tables, and they had a couple. They would have little meetings there during the day, but they had karaoke. Except that instead of a karaoke machine, you had um, a, a fellow there who would play a small a small church organ, and the songs you would in the songbook were pretty much all the songs that he knew, and so you would pick the song that you would want to sing, and he would play on his church organ and sing backup. Mm. And I remember uh, Jamie. By that point, she had she had sang the only pulp song they had on the on the on the list. So I had to go with the only Johnny Cash song they had that night. But it was again, uh, you know, I, I I got to meet, uh, you know, I finally met Ben Burgess that night because after chatting with him, he'd been on my show for a little while, and he he had he and his wife had moved to Atlanta briefly. It was uh, it was a great time. Okay. Also, there was, it was emotionally exhausting and the, because the hotel, from what I heard, the hotel did not, um, 
did not uh, want to hire cooks to come in and cook breakfast early. So they only served us cold stuff like pastries and fruit and like maybe things of like little things of cereal or yogurt. So you had a lot of people who didn't exactly have a good, you know, uh, a good hearty breakfast to keep them through the emotional uh, struggle of the day. And uh, it, it got rough. Let me uh, let me put you, let me tell you that. <laughs> Let me tell you something, Gene. Um, <laughs> all right, so 2021 campaign, uh, campaign, campaign, convention. convention. At least this time, yeah, it is um, the very online. It's the most online convention you can ever you can ever imagine. Yeah, the the, the fun bit is that the, I was trying to count the number of platforms that you had to be logged into. Uh, you see, you, there, 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 there was a Zoom login for a lot of stuff to watch, like the main stuff. There was a um, if you ha- if you were on any signal chats with people from you know either your your chapter or other people you wanted to coordinate with or just chat with or whatever. There's a Slack channel, not a Slack channel. There's an entire there's a Slack server. Slack. Yeah, there's a channel that seems like. Yeah. <laughs> Like there's you have people like people like dattering back and forth on like the DSA discord people on, you know, you know, kibitzing and arguing on Twitter. Um, you had uh, and there's, a, there's too a, many damn platforms. Yeah, there was even I mean, at one point you would need to have like six log. I have two monitors here, which was very, very handy. So it was kind of like, like you throw a couple things here and a couple things there and like, OK, now I can kind of like keep an eye on what's going on. The and then like not to mention the main the main convention platform, which is the system called Cadence, which is actually pretty I will say this, it's a that is a pretty good system, but trying to coordinate um you know interaction. Yeah. You know, trying to coordinate interactions and all the all the you know all the all, all the all the doings going on across six you know five or six different platforms is a very singular experience. I'll i I'll say that. The um what about the business of the convention, though? What do we think we're going to get out of that? What What do you think are the big kind of questions that that are going to be resolved, kind of going going into this convention? Because that's really like I don't know the, the sort of debate in the broad strokes, you know. Not not to say which side are you're on or whatever, but like like what are the big questions that you sense that are coming up? I think there's everything from like trying to get people to support a move towards. Um, having more campaigns for, if not a national campaign for, say, uh, universal child care. There's yeah. one of the resolutions they're trying to push, and Portland, uh, <laughs> Portland leads the way. No, but we Portland did have a success, successful it helps if I pro- pronounce things correctly, a successful yeah. petition drive, uh, and got a ballot measure on the November ballot last year to for Multnomah County, which is where Portland is, to pretty much have subsidized, actually built pretty much free child care uh, at union wages for kids, you know, three and four for the entire, and like that, where it was one of those things where we got like a lot of, you know, a lot of coalition built in. It was the one after... After all of the, you know, the kind of the crumbling of the Bernie campaign, as well as the other like local, um, I mean, because we had we had DSA candidates who were vying for both the House representative spot, but also a state representative spots, because after they, you know, once pandemic hit and we couldn't, um, I don't know how it was down there, but we could, we, we couldn't, you know, you can't canvas in the middle of lockdown. So we lost our main tool for getting people. And so, but so the, the, the. 
Yeah. So the universal preschool campaign became a thing where once we realized after fighting with a couple of like local business groups who really didn't want their taxes, you know, raised so that, you know, those undeserving locals might get their kids, uh, you know, in a little bit better conditions. Once we learned um, we, those, those um, that big legal fight got out and, we learned how many th- it ended up being having to we ended up having to raise 30,000 signatures to get the before i think like something like july to get this ballot measure on there and then the uprising happened and we realized that we could go to these where people had you know big meetups of like thousands of people we could go there with clipboards and you know hand sanitizer and everybody had masks on something but you had just like thousands of people who were very very you know all down for the cause and would uh, you know would just would sign up and we ended up making um you know we 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 successfully made i think we got like a over 2000 extra signatures submitted everything on it got it on the ballot and it passed by some overwhelming majority of like 70 odd percent so like you know everybody was freaking on on like election day last year everyone was freaking out except we had our we were like hey well you know we knew immediately because portland has you know oregon has mail-in voting we knew immediately that the one thing that we had focused all of our energies into uh passed overwhelmingly so we had a good we you know we had a nice little like election night party and um, so trying to I think one of the big things is trying to expand that to other uh, to other chapters, other regions, because a it is both something that needs to happen because just to give, you know, give people give working folks just at least a little bit room to breathe, because even in plenty of places, you know, uh, child care is as expensive, if not more expensive than rent. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's one of those things where we, they, we figured it is this great. Not only is it this necessary resource, um, if you really if you really want to help the working class and the working classes, you know, overwhelmingly single mothers, that this um, or at least um, you know, in there's, terms a small, of there's a large contingent of single mothers in the working class. That's not the yeah, yeah. that's not controversial. Yeah, and I think yeah, um, that that working you know. It, this is a good fight that you want to have that, you know, it's the, I don't know if this is like some sort of like Rosa Luxemburg thing talking about how the, you know, it, it is in the, it is in the fight for these things that you gain capacity that you, uh, that you, 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 you know, you gain energy from to go on and keep pushing at it. Mm-hmm. You know, hopefully you, you don't, you don't burn out or don't become discouraged when things don't go your way. But I think in, um, as a bit of a critique towards DSA historically, and uh, a lot of the tendencies are very, very electoral focused. I am not an anti-intellectualist, anti-electoralist, anti-electoralist. I'm plenty. I got plenty of anti-intellectual tendencies. What do you say? But as uh, as the great Michael J- Jamal Brooks once said, you know, it's like you don't want to do no electoralism, but you want it to be like five or ten percent of what you do. Yeah. And one of the things that we can do that's if we're um, instead of just because I think the, the we, we're you know Americans we have such a historically such a li- very deliberately narrowed perspective on what politics actually is that it is that politics is only what politicians do that um, you know that's it's just it's just running candidates on a party line and you know getting into office and then there you go that's all you need to do and it's like no that's that ain't no accident either that's an intentional depoliticization that takes place. Um, because of the 
the way that the you know sort of ruling class um dictates policy i mean essentially dictates policy it makes it seem as as though democracy doesn't matter yeah they, they, they that is intentionally designed to do that right oh yeah and and, and not and but so but then and one of the other things that i think is interesting is but when once you go if you switch from from focusing on candidates on on a, on a, in, a, in a in a partisan race to say ballot measures, you uh, it is a um, you can you can activate it's a, because you're not going against low you know even like local well-meaning Democrats they you know they don't see you as being in competition for these spots they will much happily get involved with you because like, I mean Portland had just a ton of Bernie crats who wanted to help out like you know Bernie PDX and our the local like Bernie PDX and our revolution I think we're both coalition members in like just our 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 uh, our ballot drive and so I think that's one of the things that the convention is tried to, it's like, Hey, we have, a, you know, much like how in, in Kansas city, they have a lot of uh, successful stories about tenant organizing. In Portland, we have this one thing that this one model, at least it's like, Hey, this worked here in Portland. Um, it might work where y'all are too. If you, you know, it's as long as you, you, I mean, you'll have to re EQ it a little bit. You have to adjust the levels for your own particular uh, particular uh, circumstances, but this could work, or you know, and it's and I think I have, I'm about the opinion that because we are not going to, we are not necessarily directly attacking, you know, Democratic candidates that there that the that the resistance will not be as much. It's harder to fight against like policies that that benefit the working class than it is to argue against like an individual or hard it's super easy to like smear any individual and 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 you know wipe them out and destroy their career or whatever but but if you have something like uh, medicare for all or like you're saying that the child care or or things like that like these programs that help millions of people that um you, it's, it's much harder to discredit those ideas and those programs not just that they won't try oh yes. they yeah. attempt to do that and, and try and even turn you know workers against their own interests but but um it's it's much more difficult to do that than it is to to smear or destroy any individual like that's that's easy yeah. <laughs> all you need is candle yeah i think also um and also the scale the battle the battleground you fight on shall we say the scale at which you operate at is important here the again talking about how we you know we talk about just you know decades of depolitization where most people's idea of politics is only is only stuff that happens you know often in you know politics is what politicians do politics is when you vote right yeah that's it but it's also something that politicians often in in washington dc do and they're squabbling there and that is what you know politics is only something that they care about because you vote for federal office holders every so many years one um i think part of the and so i think you know and i think the the you know, even like other third parties green party workers workers for uh work the working families party and stuff too it is there's still such a focus on the national level and 
which is I st- um, as we've learned the hard way because of continually running up against that wall. That's a, if not necessarily a dead end, that's probably not the most productive use of the mass of your resources because there, you know, the opposition is way, way too, way too strong. However, um, thanks to our lovely federal system, the, all of the battles that need to happen on the state and regional level are kind of like terrain that need to be rediscovered and reworked on and stuff like the uh, stuff like, you, uh, you know, universe, um, you know, universal child care, universal preschool is something that because you're not fighting in, in against, you know, uh, national party holders, you might be able to, um, you know, you have to reconfigure how you work a little bit, of course, but you might be able to get to, to get more in. Mm hmm. That yeah. is, and so that is. Um, I have uh, I have friends who worked on did a lot of work on those campaigns, and I even I helped out a little bit. Well, my cat and I helped out collecting signatures here. So that so we're kind of we're rather partial to that. Other, did you count how many you got versus how many your cat got? Uh, no, I uh, I would have lost. I got four, right? Yeah, because of uh, I, I mean I live in a in a residential area of the city with that has a, a good amount of foot traffic, and so I had um, at one point to collect signatures. Also, we found out that having volunteers collect signatures in different places were were a far more productive use of time and money yeah. than hiring productive productive professional signature gatherers because we knew where we needed to go and you could get like a just you know every do what i did which is get my little fold my little folding card table that i used to record podcasts on until you know pandemic happened and we can't record podcasts in real life anymore put that outside on the on the sidewalk and i set up here with my you know like got my clipboards and all my pens and masks and hand sanitizer and a sign and I'd sit out there, and my uh, my my cat Leo, who is a large mix that he's he's at least partially Maine Coon, which means he's a large, very floofy, very big vocal boy. cat. Yeah, he's a big cat, but whose main uh, main job is to kind of patrol his little egg section of the sidewalk and demand attention. So <laughs> he would people would always stop by because Portlanders love uh, the, you know something like the amount of uh, Portland folks who like you know have pets is something like far more than those who have children so portland you know other people portland folks would stop by and yeah stop by and pet him and while they were there petting him and and leo was just you know um actively meowing at them uh telling them about his day i would hit them up for like hey have you heard about this campaign and 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 like oh no i haven't what you know yeah i'll sign on for that and so there we go and that was one of the one of the ways to do it yeah other um other i think other convention aspects are uh, let's see. There's everything from like, I mean, the eternal, you know, the eternal specter of like, how do you vote for a national represent- representative board is in there. That is one of those things where I think I'm, uh, apparently was quite the drawn out. It was a drawn out fight and just pr- heavy procedural argument two years ago. I guess it was, uh, I missed a lot of it yesterday, but I guess it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. The, um, I mean, there's there, there's stuff to you know a lot of it is stuff to expand the international roles. Some folks are pushing resolutions to that, make sure that we don't have, you know, the no spy zone that we don't have like active intelligence officers, you know, as members, you know, to, uh, and a couple other things. Uh, um, to flip this around, what have you know? What have you guys seen of it so far, or at least from what's supposed to come up this week that you've been looking forward to? I mean, I'm definitely interested in 
um, the labor resolution kind of pushing towards, you know, building a national labor strategy with NDSA. Um, you know, that's unfortunately seems to have been not as emphasized as I would like. Yeah. Um, in most years, but, but, but beyond that, it's mostly the international stuff. I mean, we recently had, we actually had on this program, um, just not long ago, Austin Gonzalez, who was just on the, um, mm -hmm. uh, delegations to both Peru and to Venezuela and, um, you know, just, just building DSA into being an organization that can, that is engaging with the working, you know, the working class entities, uh, and socialist political parties broadly, like across the country. And, you know, having that develop, you know, in the heart of empire is, um, yeah. significant, you know, that's, that's something that I'm, that I'm, I'm very proud of this organization for having, you know, for being a part of. That's great too. Uh, Robert, any comment or are you still there? No, I'm still here. Um, okay. I don't know. It's hard. Like, like Jeff and I kind of go back and forth on this a lot. Um, I think that the DSA needs to be, and I, I, I think we're in a good place. At least I can only look at it through the lens of New Orleans DSA, mm -hmm. but there's always going to be people who are like super hyper involved in, uh, in like the DSA and love like the nuts and bolts. And they love like Robert's rules and all that. And I, I know it's kind of a meme, like don't trust socialists who don't like uh, who, who love meetings. So I think there always needs to be, you know, you're grooming, you know, people who are actually going to be professional politicians, but there also needs to be a strong contingent of like, as my wife, Aaron says, um, I, I actually am the working class. So I just yeah. need you to tell me where you need me to be. Yeah. I think that's the, at some point, at some point that was the, and I think that was the, uh, the, one of the, one of the beautiful things about the Bernie campaign is that the role not, well, in terms of just, I mean, I used to, uh, I'm currently, I'm an out of work engineer, got laid off two weeks ago, but what are the, the project work there, there was a lot of, I think there's a lot of great, not just um, things you can learn that corporate, uh, corporate America has, pay, you know, poured billions into understanding how it works. But I think there are certain things that we can glean from, you know, kind of like companies best practices as to how to set up projects and how and how to facilitate small group interaction. And it's one of those things that's kind of a thing where, you know, hopefully people with better analytic minds than I, or at least have better sourcing and a lot more time can go through and like figure out like, okay, you know, what can we take from what they do to put in, in, but actually, you know, put it towards you, you know, put it towards ends that aren't just making money for somebody else. Mm -hmm. So and one of the things is, is, um, project structure. And I think the one of the uh, well, a couple things we have learned as we are in as uh, some some folks, including Derek Varn, have described it as the burnout, B E R N, mm -hmm. of when you get a bunch of activists and socialists together. If they do not have a project, they fight. The um, I just talked to Varn last night uh, on Ken Shabata's show. Yeah. Small world. The uh, I pop up. Uh, he's been on my show a couple times, and I popped up on a couple of his streams. The the, but I think the the benefit of the and I think uh, the benefit of the Bernie campaign, just beyond you know the kind of the obvious ones, are that it was a project or a campaign that had very delimited. It had you know you knew what had to happen. You knew what the end, what the end state the you know the win state was, what the goal was. But also, you knew when, um, you know, when it was going to end, 
which was the big important thing because if you if uh, a lot I think a lot more people were it were much more um willing to sign up for the stuff if they knew like hey you know um we can campaign we can canvas for bernie because we know that the you know these like these goal states these goal posts that we have to hit you know this one happens on this day this one happens on this day and then this one happens on that day and then that's all we have to expend this amount of energy for and then after that we can kind of relax a little maybe do something in a different way uh and for example like you know the, so you had like a lot of people um it's like all right well we know when the the opening primaries were so we can and we we know how to canvas now and we know how to you know do texting now and so they would you know there were ways that a lot of different people from different backgrounds with different amounts of energy and capacities they could they could plug in at different levels to contribute to this goal but then a uh, pandemic happened and uh, both both of the both the Republican, the Democrat and Republican parties wanted to kill their voters by voting uh, during pandemic. And so but, and we know how that happens. Yeah, it's just keeps it keeps happening, too. Yeah. But uh, um, I mean, there's a lot of people who get really I don't know. I think there's there's something where something I've noticed where people who like read let's just say they read a little bit too much and they, they maybe they, they read uh, uh, yeah. on the leftist 20, uh, 19, well, 20th century uh, uh, leftist history a little bit too much. And it almost like if you read too much of it is you get not quite black pilled, but you will get much more, um, much more pessimistic. That's, than- that's part of the Zen problem, right? Like part of the Zen problem is that like, there is a lot of accuracy to what, like he's technically saying, but the focus of what he's read, like, like what he what he looks into and what he reads into, is a lot of the most like crushing defeats of the left in the history of the in the history yeah. of the, you know, in the United States. You know, I think you like keep plugging our, our past guests, but but we've had Harvey K on this program many times, um, talking about how he you know chooses to emphasize on. You know some of the more triumphant and more radical components of the look. You know, people like FDR definitely did do horrible things by like having you know internment camps for Japanese Americans, but they also were the first people in this country that actually constructed something of a social democratic safety net, right? Yeah. And like that is not as a solution to like that is not a revolution necessarily but it is a transition it is a change to make things like less fucking shitty yeah um you know i don't know that it, it's 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 complicated because like you can't just be so strident in your thinking in terms of like how how you're going to like push you know how are you going to like have the most perfect moral like politics or whatever and I don't know. I, I get really frustrated when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like you can get, we can get into a whole com- conversation about the new deal and like, what is it good or is it bad or whatever? But like, that's completely pointless. Right. Yeah. You can read, read a lot of, uh, I mean, we even read stuff like, uh, like Paul Maddox senior were, uh, who was writing essays called like the new, new deal, like mm-hmm. in like 1939, criticizing all of the, um, you know, all of the, labor concessions and all of the constraints that that put on like none of that is untrue yeah but it's just interesting to see yeah it's interesting just to see like at the time you know what people what like you know members of the cp usa at the time were 
uh, were, you know, were, were like, how, how did they thought everything was going on? You know, like what were their, what were their critiques of, you know, in the moment, much less, mm-hmm. you know, after, uh, after everything. And like, you know, after the, you know, during the post-war era where everything changes the, um, but I think but, but the kicker about pessimism is that, and the, that I don't like it. Uh, yeah. The two main, two main, two heavy o- online uh, tendencies that I dislike intensely are, let's just say extreme pessimism, but also contrarianism. But you know, yeah. do a show. We could do a show about the latter, a whole other show. But it, the I think part of the kicker is that there is something that constrains your perspective about what is possible, but what is likely. That reading all of the you know again yeah reading all these bump you know the 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 history of the left of the last century and like all this lost and all you know everybody getting killed or bombed out or um or or you know everything going wrong a lot of places are you know giving up and becoming and buying houses and getting de-radicalized that kind of like i think it it screws with the perception about what can be or what could be or what is going to be. Cause I think too much of uh, your mental models of how you think the world kind of works. I think they get kind of, uh, they get bent in certain ways by what uh, uh, history books well, even, you know, left history books uh, will tell you about. It's one of those things where who could have, um, no one could have predicted that, you know, there would be this mass uprising in the middle of a global pandemic in, you know, in 2020 to the point where it wasn't just based in a few cities. It was in every city, uh, you know, with the, there were more than like 1200 uh, BLM demos across the planet. Mm-hmm. And at least, like I said, it's um, how that will affect, how that will reverberate th- from here on out. I don't think anybody knows, uh, but it was it's something that uh, there were a lot of missed opportunities, but at least this was something that happened that nobody could call. Where even like, you know, pessimists like Matt Chrisman were like, you know, brought the, went to one of those demos and was like on a stream afterwards, like brought to, you know, talk about how it brought him to tears just yeah. to see that this amount of people, you know, this kind of cr- Matt, Matt, you know, Matt, Matt cracks me up because like he's a pessimist but he's he's like a softy too <laughs> yeah. and but yeah just crying but talk about how you know and like just ripping into people um who were saying like you know this was not you know this wasn't a revolutionary working class movement it's like you know what the f is up with you people get you know there's there are get in the damn streets there are millions of people in the streets get in there now um his big thing is finding meaning in life like it's become very very simple yeah i think uh something makes me wonder i uh, I think I think not having a um, a date. It's, I think that's one of those outlooks of both uh, continued psychedelic use, but also having like you know having having day jobs you can't identify with. Or correction, not not having day jobs, but rather having work because uh, there's a difference alienation. between what's that? That's alienation. That's what alienation is. Yeah. But and uh, to to quote my old philosophy professor who actually just passed uh, the great Fritjof Bergman, who started up the new work, new culture center, talked about how most people, their view of work is is kind of is like this alienating thing because we only see work as through, you know, as a day job through the job system. Whereas he's like, if, if you um, ask somebody about their day job, they're kind of like, eh, it's that it's not too good. It's I do this to keep the lights on. But if you ask somebody about it's their, life, yeah, yeah, it's 11. If you ask somebody about their life's work, however, that flips it. 
Because at some point, productive labor, and I think some of the stuff comes out of like a lot. Of, he was doing, he was a lot of like, uh, uh, Fritschoff was doing a lot of like post Marxist stuff, but he talked about how, you know, that work could be um, one of the most thrilling, most uh, life, en- life engaging, life giving things you could ever possibly do. Uh, but the question is with meaning. And the great example of this is whenever, uh, whenever the Midwest floods, and it was because I can remember, especially t- um, this happened in because I was a big, a massive college hockey fan. Right after the championships, the I think it was the North Dakota team, and North Dakota had a great hockey team. They'd have to like immediately fly home because all the players were needed on the front lines to just to fill sandbags to <laughs> to defend, you know, to, to build levees to defend against the the river. And interviews with these people who were out there, they would talk about how this would be like, again, this, um, this was like the most thrilling, most fulfilling thing that they'd ever done in their life was just, you know, working together collectively um, on this. I mean, what would have been an alien, normally an alienating, mind numbing task just to, but they worked on it together to solve this problem. And it was one of the most thrilling things in their life. It's kind of, yeah, it's the search for meaning as opposed to say, um, I think it was Dostoevsky who wrote about how, like in Russian prisons, like the uh, it's one of the things that the the the, um, the prisoners would have to do would be like either picking up rocks from one one pile and put them up on another, or like you know picking up things of sand from one pile and put it on another. It's kind yeah. of like how alienating that is versus some very similar tasks of you know earthworks, but the meaning is far different. Yeah, if you're doing that for self-preservation or protection of your family or your community or, or whatever, you know, the people that you love and that you care about, regardless of how you, like, define that or how you, like, label it or whatever, yeah. like, that's much more meaningful uh, than, you know, the the, 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 the purely 100% totally alienated sense of, like, you do this because, you know, the prison guard literally is making you do it because yeah. if you don't do it, there will be a punishment. Like, that's I mean, the difference. I can give you a hard example of, of, I guess, what you're talking about. It's like, when we had our first wave of coronavirus, like, I was not, I wasn't blackpilled at all. Like, I was I was totally like, oh, I'm going to build a garden. I'm going to, like, we, we live in New Orleans anyway, so it's always good to have, like, you know, this isn't even, like, a crazy food hoard or something. This is, you know, at worst, it's going to be my hurricane preparedness kit. I've got stuff to filter water. The government's going to, we're going to shut this, you know, the whole, the whole country down. Every, this is going to be like a, a, a complete reset button. Yeah. And it's going to be something we survive. But now it's like, here we are on like what fourth wave. And now it feels like, oh, we're just going to just let people die and we're not going to shut down. And right now I'm much more terrified because I don't have anything to do. Yeah. This feels that- way scarier. I have no purpose now. Yeah, no way to plug in. No, it is like it is akin to swimming in a lake of where you can't touch bottom and you don't know how deep it is. Where at some point the there there is this free floating anxiety, literal free floating uh, anxiety. The um, yeah, that's rough. That's uh, mm-hmm. the uh, one of the thing. One of the things up in Portland that we've had to do is. Well, we've had about four or five natural disasters up here, more than usual. Not to mention the uprising where uh, once 
a lot of like mutual aid groups started kicking off in like in March or April of last year. Then the, then the uprising happened, and then there were some more. Then there were some of the groups started forming to help uh, help support the protest because in Portland, uh, infamously, I guess those there were there were more than a hundred nights of protests. Then the fires came. And so you had all of these mutual aid groups, uh, you know, DSA, um, like some, some of the wobblies helped out too. even like local churches and kind of like, just like, uh, just kind of like ad hoc, well-meaning people throwing things together had to pivot on a dime to figure out like, okay, we now have, um, there were, you know, most of the West coast is on fire and there were days in Portland, I mean, Portland alone, not, you know, not to mention all the stuff that was going on in central California or even central Oregon, but in Portland, alone, where the smoke was over where like the, they had to invent new colors for the, for the air quality index meter because they had ran out of the, the, the respective before they had run out. And there were days I can remember looking at it where the, the AQI was like over four or 500. And so a lot of people had to immediately like, okay, now what we do, it's like immediately you had to like turn on a dime from doing pandemic and protest support to like, okay, Hey, we need box fans and, and, uh, and furnace filters for people and like cardboard and duct tape. So people can build their own, build their own like in-house air filter system. We need to like go to your local air gas and okay, who, you know, Hey everybody, I'm going to air gas. Can you guys Venmo, Venmo me money and I'll buy respirators and, and KN95s and then go distribute that. Oh, looks like we just got raided by Kenzo. Welcome to, uh, the Good Morning Comrade Show. We have uh, Jeremy on the show from giving the mic to the wrong person. Jeff and Robert, what's going on? Welcome, Welcome in, everybody. Smash that, uh, smash that follow button. Smash that uh, subscribe button if you want to give us a little bit of cash to keep the show going, too, by the way. Um, but, yeah, we're talking about, um, really, we're kind of getting into a lot of, like, like galaxy brain stuff here. Um, but you want to continue on? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I want to take Donald. No, not a problem. Yeah, I always woke up. I always, I always thought that was weird that uh, that transferring users on Twitch was called a raid because you're not raiding anything. It's a cascade. You're cascading yeah. your users to the next place. And yeah, then we're, 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 we're um, I don't know what you want to call it, but hey, we got some followers. Thank you, Audi. Uh, uh, off the you guys well. are so silly. It's it's MORPG speak yeah that's why you gotta, you gotta do the it's like wrestling you gotta do the here we talk the video game speak mm-hmm. yeah it's it's memes it's just meme oh we got starlight eyes here as well but anyway i'm sorry continue jeremy oh no not a problem let me, let me just mute that okay um but one and to, to connect this well connect both well, let me let me well let me finish the terms about this was this is the uh, for those folks of you just joining me. Uh, I'm a podcaster based in Portland, Oregon. You may or may not have seen me uh, once again, uh, occasionally popping up on either Derek Varn stuff or uh, once in a while I will help out or comment on the excellent show that I think every single one of you should subscribe to called This Is Revolution, hosted oh, by love Revolution here. Yeah. Jason and Jason and Pascal are fantastic yeah hosted by jason miles and the great pascal robert uh who and if you ever if you want a really fun thing to do is uh go back go to the archives of uh majority report and watch the couple of segments where pascal robert is on majority report just lay, you know laying it down like everything from on 80 oh my god dude we like, watched we, i actually streamed like i did a like a live react andy type thing to that like 
as he talked about it. It just like the way that Pascal delivers like all of this info in mm-hmm. this like very like clear, succinct way, but like completely and like utterly no bullshit and right. like completely and utterly authoritarian, like authoritatively. Like it's the dude is the dude is a absolute like gift from God, like a wealth of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I was kind of thinking when I first started listening to the show back in, I think the first episode I heard was like back in like November, I think it was when Derek Varner went on, I'm like, wow, this is a really cool show. So I started checking out the other stuff and it's like, I think once, uh, and then subscribed and then it's like, yeah, this is, it's at one point you just want to, you want to, uh, once it got into its modern form in just a few months, it's something that like you want to, it's like you want to like spam all your friends. Like, dude, let's, you know, watch this. This is kind of like, you have like, you know, it takes of like, um, you know, this vital history of life on there all the time too. talking to we love great stuff but uh oh anyway but just to um but just to finish up the talking about the, you know the last year of life in portland is so we had the wildfires going on there and we were able to that was a couple weeks and most people were able to survive although there was plenty of some real nasty stuff happened where all of the three per all the three percenter types who are in central oregon uh and east oregon were kind of a thing where they would um because they're in full on, you know, this was during the, the, you know, high moral panic Antifa is coming for your daughter, um, you know, freak out where they would have like, they're like, oh, they're coming to this town. And, you know, all the, oh, you heard all these stories happening in the Pacific Northwest. So they would start, they were actually like built, putting out roadblocks in a couple of these roads because they heard that like Antifa were coming and um, which also kind of like uh, stymied rescue efforts and, and wildfire prep efforts because they would hear they'd hear the, on the on the radio uh, like uh, you know agents and federal officials saying BLM and they thought that uh, they thought that Bureau Land the Bureau of Land Management meant black <laughs> said, oh man B- BLM is in town so yeah we got to go we got to go fight them and such so the um, but this, but anyway, the and then uh, so a few months later, things kind of quiet down relatively due to uh, once the winter hits and then early on in early February, then we get the ice storm right before it hits Texas and in, in Oregon because uh, for a bunch of different reasons, mainly because the the utility company refu- uh, refuses to bury its power lines. So Portland is a city where the. Um, where all of our power lines are like up up high, which mm-hmm. means when you have an ice storm, which you uh, uh, you now have record out power outages everywhere because uh, power lines are not built to be uh, to to carry that much weight in ice, and mm-hmm. so that uh, everybody had to like reactivate all of their mutual aid groups almost immediately, try to help people focus on that to the point of where you now have everything from like groups called potato block that are all about like Matt, you know, cooking mass amounts of potatoes and other foods for people for like free distribution during emergencies to um, like little gro- like groups of w- lumberjacks who are working on securing, like acquiring, you know, chopping, drying and um, setting up firewood caches uh, around town. So that once, you know, when the, uh, the next major storm hits, we have ways to distribute firewood, to people mm-hmm. 
That uh, and and I bring this back to the DSA convention and that there's actually a, one of the panel workshop meetings this this week. I'm disappointed that there's only like two on mutual aid. I wish there was a lot more because but there's actually is a panel called something like you know how to use mutual aid you know mutual aid as like a recruitment tool and that is a thing of like yeah one of the things that you can get people out there to you know to join in on your cause is to help provide you know it is. Um, a lot of people bring up the Black Panther Party about the kind of stuff that they did, and I think the sometimes there's a little bit too much of a, of a romanticization with that. But I mean, we're we're like modern Americans, of course. We everything is romanticized. The, yeah, John, John, by the way, from um, he's from Baton Rouge, uh, formerly of, of New Orleans chapter, um, has talked about um, he's talking about how it's been a great recruitment tool doing mutual aid um, events for the Baton Rouge chapter of DSA. It's a great Indeed. way to bring people, it's a great way to help people, it's a great way to sort of build your like network. Oh yeah. Um, and it's like, when you think about it too, like there's been and this is something that's been going on since at least 2019 um when we first started doing our 2018 I guess when we started doing Great Lake clinics here. Um where's like this question of Oh, is doing mutual aid like doing charity work or something like this? And we've discussed that a lot on this program and we've sort of dispensed with a little bit of those arguments. But but do you want to kind of jump on with that? Yeah, it's the and I'll say this out front that I am not an anarchist. I describe myself as um, yeah, as I don't know, vaguely I'm a vaguely drunk Marxist. How about that? The. <laughs> but the, the thing about the thing about mutual aid, especially in that, it it is it's not charity because charity it relies on maintaining power power hierarchy. Charity relies upon yeah, it's just it is it is the largesse of Bezos, the almighty Bezos. Um, God, there's a lot of uh, I'm surprised no one has come up with a with a Zardoz. Uh, uh, joke or riff, uh, just but well, Bezos is close enough already to Zardoz as a name, so you don't need yeah. to even make a joke about it. It's just too it, on the nose. Yeah, that's the this you know this flying statue head of uh, this bald guy. The uh, you know the Amazon is life. The, uh, the God, giant God. flying dick going out into space for eleven minutes. Yeah, the uh, the the yeah the rocket penis is life. The br- the gun brings death or what or whatever I can't remember how the line goes but uh, if you folks if you haven't seen it yet go see the film Zardos just to see what pre Star Wars Hollywood science fiction well English Hollywood uh, English science fiction starring a bikini clad Sean Connery looks like oh yeah anyway, the um but mutual aid is something is different from charity because again mutual is much as opposed to like having um playing on the being an, enti- an entirely moral, uh, moralistic thing of like you know uh, this kind of like of the of the of the 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 comfortable folks the yeah there we go there's uh, yeah there's uh, Sean Connery about to give a, a about to give a lecture on the history of revolver and the boots are perfect honestly yeah. and the, the the straps of the the bullet straps I just yeah. love it yeah double double so ma- yeah the double matching hair the mustache like everything is perfect yeah double matching bandoliers. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the 70s were a heck of a time the but uh but mutual aid is the thing of like it is not kind of like rich people like you know donating down or anything it is you know it's like us giving to us 
uh, or at least, you know, it's much more horizontal. It is, it's kind of a thing of like trying, you know, trying to, at some point, not, you know, several lines, I guess. I am very bad at articulating these things because I don't think I've ever actually been asked to. Working class helping itself is what mutually it is. I I think you're fine, dude. I think you're doing a a bad job at all. Yeah. It's just like, I I look at it as this and I I need to do more of it and I'm not, I'm not good at it because mostly because I like to, you know, I like to play video games and like goof around i like to enjoy life but i I think all this like mutual aid stuff honestly is is a trial run to where like the end of capitalism and it might not be in our lifetime but we can show the next generation like hey when things when things fall apart because they will it's going to happen you can see it this is how we're going to protect the most people yeah and like like, crash the plane and with as few casualties as possible we got to get john's ass on this show pretty soon but uh he says, yeah, the Underground Railroad was mutual aid. You use your own ability to flee others uh, and help the up along the way. That's that's 100% true. And one of the things that, um, like, we learned, at least throughout, like, the brake light clinics in New Orleans, and it's like, again, we're not kidding ourselves in saying that, like, mutual aid is everything of yeah. all the thing. It's not like an like a, a replacement for, like, like taking the power away from the capitalists or anything like that but like what it does do is it provides relief for people in an immediate sense and plus the the like in a in a like strictly developmental sense like it is a very easy thing to plug new people into dsa into and put them in charge of something that they can essentially claim ownership of they can essentially establish some experience, become essentially veteran organizers to a certain extent, and move on to something a little bit different. It's a very good thing to get people involved in as a first project. Kenzo says, I think mutual aid is going to look very different depending on your location and the local politics. Of course. You yeah, got that right. Different needs. In, uh, that's one thing I, uh, I wanted to put together, like a little ad hoc like a little ad hoc, like last minute meetup of like, you know, just like little like you know two hour mutual aid chat for people in the convention, that um, of like talking about how because I think in in Pac Northwest we have we have wildfire we have earth well actually we got volcanoes and Nazis and wildfires, y'all have hurricanes, uh, and then in up in the north in back in my home state of of um, of Michigan you have. Well, you have, you know, bad water and you also have snowstorms. So it's like, you know, everybody has, you know, the earth is trying to kill us all in just, but in slightly different ways. And some of them is also the, you know, the effects of the last uh, 200 years of our political economy now coming to bite us in the ass. So, yeah. And here's Kenzo again, like in some areas, there's uh, have standing institutions that provide mutual aid. We have to either work in coalition with those institutions or find bigger uh, ways to fill with groups. Um, but there are places that there's no aid work or all that aid work is done by churches. Exactly. And, Correct. Like, and, and, and the fact that churches are doing it is not a bad thing either. But like it is an opportunity to sort of build like build ties in the working class to and to develop again. Like I'm, I'm interested in building an organization when it comes to like DSA and stuff. And if you, in order to do that, you need to build like you need to get people experienced in organizing projects right and by doing that like by giving something that is is like 
easily replicable, something that is, there is no need, there's no, like, horizon on which, like, the need for mutual aid is going to go away. Yeah. So, like, this is something that is something that is almost, it's replicable to the point where it will never end. So, it is a great perpetual starting point for bringing people into your organization. Indeed. And as the, again, the aforementioned Pascal Robert again has even uh, quizzed uh, DSA members on the air before in very um, not quite tense, but very uh, like kind of pointed and, and almost in a very Pascal way that very Pascal ways about like, why, you know, why are more DSA folks not involved with like, say like black churches and which is a, an extremely good point. They're and, critical parts of communities, like super important. Yeah. And it's also, but it's kind of a thing of like, that's the, I think one of the, um, one of the downsides of the of like oh, the left said, coming. Sorry, hold on a second. Um, Starlight Eyes gave twenty gear the tier one subs gifted twenty gear tier one subs. Holy shit! Thank you so much. So much Starlight Eyes. Sweet. Man, you are the man. Oh, that's wow. Like that's that's so awesome. I, I don't even know how to put into words right now. Yeah, considering that we've had two subs. Uh, okay, so we have we had two subs prior to Starlight Eyes. Uh, one is Cladonius, one is Starlight Eyes, and then 20 gifted subs by Starlight Eyes. Like, mad fucking props to you. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jeremy. Oh, no, that's, that, that's fine. It's kind of, these, are, these are the things you got to do uh, to keep the lights on. The, um, the uh, comment from John, I was, with, I was with one of Nola's co-chair in a, uh, in a black neighborhood campus scene, and the conservative folks want to support the campaign to decriminalize sex work. Yeah, that, that was, uh, there you go. The, but also, I mean, it's it's a thing of like, and one of the, I think one of the historic mistakes the left has made because of, it, um, for better or for worse, the, the new left got way got intertwined maybe a little bit too much with the counterculture. The counterculture was not a left thing at all, as uh, as any uh, you know as. Uh, as we know now of uh, just looking to how reactionary, uh, you know, hippies and new agers are can be about, say, vaccines that. But it, but part of the con, but it was a thing. There was a definite uh, break with, uh, with with all the church groups of the of the of the civil rights movement. It's one of those. It's like heck. The, the people who just, the the activists who broke into that FBI office to discover the COINTEL program. One of them was a member. Uh, I believe was a full on member of, of like Catholic Worker. So. Exactly. So. Uh, and it's a uh, and it, so it's one of those things of re- realizing if like because I think Derek Varnas pointed this out a couple times. It's like the the if you're if folks are looking for examples of large non-state affiliated communities, social socially um, uh, socially strong and robust communities, you have to look at churches because you have this entire network. I mean, there's there it is um, much like with everything else. It's extremely complex, and you're uh, and um, you have to you have to be strategic about who you inter, you interface with but there yeah. again just the i mean i live in portland where most were uh, in neighborhoods where like every church has a pride flag sticker on the main church sign and you had um heck one of the one of the local churches would actually ha- had yeah had a nativity scene but uh it uh, but fenced in with barbed wire yeah, it's like we support, you know, we support migrants and immigrants on there. And like those are the kind of people it's again, it's like it's the same as like, reach, you know, reaching out to uh, 
reaching out to well-meaning Bernie Kratz as like an easy get and to try to kind of like, you know, help, you know, kind of like, like, like you're tapping a balloon, just like, you know, very slowly tapping, tap, tap, you know, hell, come, come work with us. We want to do this stuff. And we're, Hey, all we all we want to do is say, you know, maybe we want to, uh, today we want to provide um, ice and water to the God, I, I can't. I, um, the heat waves were in Portland a few weeks ago, and just the amount of folks that were out doing like water runs and ice runs um, and food runs for like all of the uh, all of the tent cities that are everywhere was kind of astounding. I remember I went out there, and the, most of the uh, by the time I'd gotten to most of the places in Northeast Portland that I would stop by, they had already been supplied by at least like two others, and just say, "Hey, do you guys need? I got waters and ice. You need anything?" And they're like, "No, man, we got it. Thanks." And just mm-hmm. use that as a way to uh, do so as a way t- to build the movement and to other and to bring others into. The- and the ver- at the very worst, at the very worst in this scenario, you're helping somebody. Yeah, at the very yeah, at the very if first- you don't come into your movement, you like somebody who sleeps on the you know wherever at night doesn't have to be cold because they don't have a blanket. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's it's at least point if you can if we can only if our efforts only say alleviate 10% of the suffering of a person for that week that is at least you know they uh, that is a that is a material benefit for them and in at least um, uh, a uh, an improvement an incremental improvement yes but at least something you know that lets them live for a little bit longer and maybe gets them you know lets them gives them the potential of trying to get into something a bit more stable totally totally hundred percent. Well, I think we're gonna have to start wrapping. Um, I have school in the morning, so uh, uh, we got. I got to get to bed. But um, give um, giving the mic to the wrong person. It sounds like tonight we gave the mic to the right person. Actually, now there you go. Yeah, people ask me what the what the name of the show is for, and it's like, well, you know, because I was well. First, I named it because uh, one of my favorite bands is the Replacements. And doing things that, uh, you know, shooting yourself in the foot with a shotgun because it's funny is uh, very appealing to me, uh, which the replacements were extremely famous at. Um, and, and so there was, well, who, you know, so I use that name just because, uh, I thought it was funny and I always have to explain this to people. Yeah. Uh, I'm the wrong person. Give them, you know, uh, give them, you know, what happens when you give the bike to me, the, uh, anyway, you can find my show. I it's called giving the mic to the wrong person. Uh, I we're at soundcloud.com slash giving the mic on Twitter. Uh, it's at giving the mic. Uh, like with every other uh, left pod, we do have a Patreon. We you know we we are supported by listeners listeners like you <laughs> at patreon.com slash giving the mic. Facebook slash giving the mic. Um, also check out this is revolution. Please subscribe to that if at all possible. Yeah. If you haven't yet uh, subscribe to these guys, but most of you already probably have. Um, yeah. And, uh, that's my, th- uh, if you have, if you have any questions or comments for me, please, you can email me giving the mic at gmail.com also, but yeah, we're and we're stuck in the middle of the, uh, of this, of, uh, the 2021 DSA national convention. We'll see what other hijinks and interesting developments come from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to thank you guys a lot for being open to kind of s- s- more or less kind of like thrown together last minute chat. Absolutely. And like, we have to have you back on real soon. Cause this was a blast. I had a great time. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I hope you did too. Yeah. It's, it is rare that I get a chance to be the guest. I'm usually in host mode when I do these things. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm sure you're yeah. um, and yeah, uh, just what's last word from John. 
I built community too. We talking about mutual aid. Um, folks got comfortable enough to tell us that they got uh, we got rice and beans five days a week, and we never did it again. It took folks. Um, it took months, but that's trust, real trust. There you go. Yeah, we John's. I'm not John's does John's doing great work. We we love John, and he's a delegate as well in convention, and uh, he he's one of the real good ones. Excellent. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's another, and then you have, there's a whole, even if he's from Atlanta, even if he's from Atlanta, we still like him. (laughs) And I mean, there's also, there's also something where you'll get, you'll get certain segments who will say that like mutual aid is not, it's somehow like, you know, they don't see how it's building socialist power. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess the difficulty is like to respond patiently to them. It's like, it's like, well, you know, what, you know, it's just kind of like, yes, it is. And here's how, but anyway, It's, it's, yeah, I don't have a lot of time for those kinds of arguments. But anyway, thank you so much again for coming on, Jeremy. Have a great night. Uh, like everybody, have a great night. Thank you so much. We love you. Good. Bye. Nice meeting y'all. Good night. Bye. I get to sleep too. Buku time. Night. And there we go.